Now I will say this, that I got in late last night and I didn't hear what Brother Gerald had to say uh, about inspiration. Uh, he and I talked on the phone and so I'm innocent. Uh, if I say anything that that uh, that uh, is too much of an overlap, but I don't think it, it will be a lot. I also think uh, two basic points here. Right? One is, what does inspiration by God mean? And then I want you to think about what are some of the of the implications uh, of of that. What is what does it imply and entail? So let's think about what the inspiration of God means. Inspiration, as it's used uh, in Scripture, as it relates to how we got the Bible, was not like Brother Paul used the word inspiration this morning. And I, and I picked up on that because uh, I had this topic. But he talked about you know, the meetings being inspired. We use the word inspiration in that sense. I'm inspired to clean out the garage. Or I'm inspired because I was at this meeting and it pumped me up or, or you know, bless my soul or, or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. Inspiration, when we're talking in terms of how we got the Bible and how the Bible uses inspiration itself, has to do with the divine supervision or superintendency of the communication of truth. It recognizes God as the source and the authority of Scripture. The word inspire, is, as it's, uh, you can go to 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, if you'd like, where it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, the English word inspire comes from the Latin meaning to breathe in. The Greek word translated inspiration is a compound word composed of God and breath or blow or breathe or blow and some translations actually render, render this more literally that all scripture is God breathed or all scripture is breathed out by God. And incidentally, maybe I shouldn't say this uh, with someone like Gerald here that's a teacher and is, knows the word, nuances the word better than I do. But isn't it true that breathe out in English is actually expire? And, and so if Bible is God breathed, if we really want to be, uh, in a sense, a little more literal rendering that in English, and there's that idea, that all scripture is expired by God. But there again, then that brings in the wrong idea because we don't really look forward generally to expiring. <laughs> and so that just shows some of the complications of translating. Uh, it's, it's finding uh, the right word and, and the root meanings of the word and, and that sort of thing. But anyway, when it says that the, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, it, it comes from the breath of God. And God's breath is a creative force. God's breath blew into the nostrils of, of men. God's uh, those other things that the Bible uh, credits to the breath of God. However, with the exception of the Ten Commandments, God did not actually write Scripture directly. He used men with their individuality in the creation of the Bible, and in that sense, the Bible is both human and divine. 
Now going to Second Timothy, Second uh, Peter. I'm sorry, to Second Peter, <coughs> chapter two, verses twenty and twenty-one. We see here the initiative of God and the instrumentality of men. Um, it's clearly seen in these verses, and I kind of break in on that passage there in verse. Where it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so here we see that Scripture writers did not act upon their own volition, but were chosen by God. This choice was consistent with God's purposes, with God, with their personalities, their backgrounds, their vocabularies. And so you see that in, in Scripture. And particularly as people read in the original languages, they can pick up that, well, well this sounds John I. Yeah, this is the way John wrote, and, and this is the way Paul wrote. Not that, uh, and, and we do that, that ourselves. And we can say, well, this sounds like so-and-so preaching, and this sounds like somebody else preaching, and so our writing styles change. Now, sometimes people try to use that to discredit the authorship of a particular uh, book. They say, well, well, this don't sound like John writing, or this doesn't sound like Paul writing, or this doesn't sound like... And so then they say, well, this must have been, you know, inserted or, or, or whatever, and so they use that in a higher critical sense. At the same time, we ourselves uh, sometimes have the capacity to change our way of writing too. And so we write this way or we, we can write that way. And, and, uh, and so there is some variation. But, but God chose people uh, for his purposes who had various writing styles. They had different personalities. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is fast-paced. And it says, and, 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 and it moves along. And then the Gospel of, of Luke is, is, of a different, is of a different character. Also, God, it says here, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so God used men of a, of a specific time and character. They were men. They were men. But in relationship with God, they are described as that they were holy men. Terms of their, they're described as being holy, and then the Holy Spirit it says, "Here, men spake, men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." The Holy Spirit guided the penman through the writing. The reader, the writers, wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, or more literally, born or carried along. It's the idea of, of like a sailboat that the sailboat is moved along, carried along uh, by the wind and in interaction with his sails. Again, uh, oftentimes the writers, you know, perhaps the prophet, uh, the, I'm not sure that there was hardly any consciousness that the people who were writing, they may have known that this is from God, but a consciousness that this will be preserved as scripture. I, I doubt if there was very much consciousness of that. Uh, but God used them in a supernatural way to guide their their uh, writing. Now, some people try to gather together what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty over the formation of Scripture and come up with a definition. One definition by uh, John L. Stauffer is this, 
he was a, a Mennonite teacher, and he writes, This inspiration is that operation of the Holy Spirit upon the writers of Scripture, by virtue of which they were enabled and directed to communicate and record divine truth without any mixture of error. And then someone from the evangelical uh, segment of the church, of the Christian church, has this to say, Carl Henry, uh, in terms of defining inspiration, a supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen men, in consequence of which their writings became trustworthy and authoritative. The bottom line is that all scripture is given is the word of God. It's not the word of men. And that's what gives scripture its authority. Otherwise, the apostles and prophets lose their authority, and we might as well have red letter editions so that we can uh, know what is authoritative and authoritative and what is not. Um, but no, we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We've been uh, defining uh, a bit what we mean by inspiration. Now I want us to think about what inspiration by God implies and entails. It assures us that that Scripture carries real weight because it is the product of God, the very Word of God, although He brought it into being uh, through the instrumentality of men. But just how authoritative is the Bible? Did God choose to speak through us through the deficiencies and ignorance of the times so that the Bible is like a crude map, that it's not very precise or accurate, but it will get us there. Did God speak to us in myths and culture-bound practices that give us some sense of what of what God wants, uh, who He is, but the specifics don't need to be taken too literally? Well, I want us to consider some aspects of the nature of God's Word that will help us answer the question just how authoritative is the Bible. And part of what I want to do in this section is to unpack some of the of the article of faith that reads like this, and that uh, statement of faith is the first article, and it reads like this. We believe in the plenary and verbal inspiration of the Bible as the Word of God that it is authentic in its matter, authoritative in its counsels, inerrant in the original writings, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now let me say that in some circles, or in the Mennonite Church USA circles, and, and maybe other than that, this statement is discredited. It's being discredited. And part of the reason it's being discredited is because they're saying that it really comes from the fundamentalist influence and not from Anabaptist influence. Uh, and it's true. It came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Uh, and so it was in 1921 when it was accepted by the Mennonite uh, General Conference. It actually had been drafted in Virginia, in the, by the Virginia Conference, I think in 1919. <laughs> We, as a, as a people, we generally, generally don't address issues until they become issues. And so at that time, the Bible was under threat, the authority of the Bible was under threat in a way that it wasn't under threat during much of the period of, of Anabaptist and Mennonite history. Now in saying that, it is true that there was a spiritualist element among Anabaptism that didn't hold uh, to... Uh, some literal acceptance of, of uh, for instance, that communion uh, and perhaps bap 
baptism were spiritual experiences instead of literal things. And so there was a certain amount of, of that element in, in, uh, in Anabaptism. <coughs> Anabaptism really was a broad tent. It cast a broad tent. But the fact that the, this uh, statement was drafted in a particular historical context to address the issues of, of the time does not invalidate its usefulness to articulate our understanding of the nature of Scripture. And so you don't need to be intimidated, even though it came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, or that Anabaptists didn't really deal with issues such as inerrancy. I would assume that basically it was it, it was assumed. It wasn't it wasn't an issue. Um, it's like concerning Mennonites painting toenails wasn't an issue uh, too much 40 years ago, but it's become an issue now. And so you deal with those issues when they when they come up. Okay, so I want to look at a number of implications, and this, the first one, is not really out of the statement of faith, uh, but I want to say it this way. The Bible records objective information from God and about God. The Bible records objective information from God and about God. God communicates to us just as he made us as human beings to communicate to one another. Uh, when That is when we are communicating honestly. Now it's true that sometimes as human beings we communicate dishonestly to one another. Uh, but God is communicating honestly to us and he communicates to us just as he made us to communicate to one another when we're communicating honestly. And so while we may use figures of speeches and literary devices and that type of thing in our communication to one another, we still generally communicate to communicate in an understandable way and in a straightforward way, especially so the more crucial and critical the information. Well, we don't speak in riddles when somebody's house is on fire and there's, there's a life in danger. And, but there are sometimes we do speak in, in more indirect language. Likewise, while God employs various literary devices in his work, yet it asserts truth and speaks with a literal meaning. God does not speak to us so ambiguously and so subjectively in his word that it leaves us racing down the highway of life in a dense fall not knowing where we're going. The Bible is not a collection of larger-than-life religious stories uh, that explain man's spiritual aspirations and the development of religion that, while taken seriously, cannot be taken literally. That's more of the, of the old uh, liberal view of, of Scripture. The Bible does not simply contain the Word of God nor become the Word of God when we have an encounter with God through it. It's the Word of God. Nor does the Bible, the Bible is not human accounts of or witnesses the divine revelation. It is divine revelation. And those two things is what the old, uh, back in the, in the more of the mid-20th century and a little later was this thing called neo-orthodoxy. And, and it's like, you know, the Bible becomes the Word of God when you, when you read it and you have this encounter and then now, now it's the Word of God. Or, it is not really God's revelation. It is people's writing about revelational encounters that they, they had. And so, no, that's not that's not what the Bible is either. Today, you know, we in the last 
15 years or so, we've heard about postmodernism, and now I've heard, uh, you know, that's just recently something that's even moving beyond that. Um, but that's more the, the idea that the, the Bible is a, let me say it like this, the Bible is not a humanly crafted meta-narrative, an overarching story that just explains what we Christians believe, but I mean, the Muslims have their meta-narrative, and and the Hindus have their story and all, and every story is a good story. But this is the Christian story. And it's no, that's not that's not what the Bible is either. The Bible's objective, literal meaning, character is seen, for instance, in Matthew uh, eight uh, five eighteen, where, where Zara mentioned this morning, where it says. Um, it talks about down to the jot and the tittle. And uh, in that same verse, it talks about, it refers to the law until heaven and earth shall not pass away until the, all the law is fulfilled. And how literal is law? Argue with your law enforcement officer about that. No, don't. Like if we take that straightforward, don't the law is, it is not too malleable. Uh, the straightforward nature of the Bible is also seen in that the Bible itself uh, attributes itself to to uh, to God. The writings of the Old Testament are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And it says in the New Testament, Jesus says, I have many things to tell you, but I cannot tell them all. But when he comes, he shall guide you to truth. He'll bring things to your remembrance. And so uh, it's attributing that that the Bible is is bringing uh, is the author uh, that God is the author of the Bible. Thinking about the implications, a second implication is of inspiration is that the Bible is wholly true and trustworthy. And conservative Christians have come to express that uh, truth, that belief of, un of inspiration through the word inerrancy. Or historically, a close synonym was infallibility. That the Bible was wholly true and trustworthy. That that means that Scripture is without error in all that it affirms, entirely without mistake or deception, and wholly trustworthy. Now, some people are convinced that Scripture contains errors of fact, yet they want to have an authoritative uh, Bible. Their contention is that in matters of faith and practice that the Bible is authoritative, but in, in matters of history and science, there, there can be some error. But strictly from a strictly logical view, how can we have confidence that the Bible is going to be authoritative and truthful in, in uh, faith and practice, which we cannot see, when it is an error in science and history that is more readily confirmable? And so that is a logical uh, disconnect um, right on a fundamental level. Also, Jesus himself testifies to the in inerrancy of Scripture when in the context of proving a point to the Jewish leaders in John 10, uh, 34 and 35, he says that Scripture cannot be broken. And that was taken to mean that Scripture cannot be refu refuted or shown to have error. And so Jesus himself gave witness do the infallibility uh, in the inerrancy of Scripture. In addition, since Scripture is God-breathed, it is God's Word, 
then the accuracy of Scripture really rests in God. And as I mentioned before, God cannot lie. And so if we accept that Scripture is fallible, that it is errant, then if it claims to be all inspired by God and come from God, God is placed in a, in a place of contradiction. That he who cannot lie is lying to us in his word. Now I would like to make two qualifications concerning errancy or inerrancy. And the first is that inerrancy means that when all the facts become known, the Bible is entirely true and never false in what it affirms. There are things in the Bible that um, sometimes you may record the words or thoughts of men who are mistaken. For instance, in Ecclesiastes or in Job. And so uh, someone will be saying something and and it is not the, the they are mistaking in, in their point of view. And so inerrancy does not make what someone says that is a lie to be truthful. Uh, it is a truthful record of what was said. The second qualification is that inerrancy applies to the original writings. It does not apply to any subsequent manuscript copy, copies or any uh, translations or versions. Now, um, you know, this morning, Brother Martin was was helping us see that that there are there are uh, mistakes, whatever you want to call them, errors, creep into the manuscript record. And I'm not sure I heard him say this, but uh, uh, they have not all been removed. Okay? And I, so he shook his head and agreed. Okay, so it's, it's, uh, it's the truth. And so you can go to your own, if you carry the King James Bible, you can go to the own King James Bible. I won't take the time to show that, but there are places, for instance, that this king lived, it says in Chronicles that he lived for so many years, and it, or reigned, and it says in Kings that he, and the numbers are different, or that Solomon's horses are different, or different things. So, so there still are some uh, contradictions, or some, uh, some copious mistakes, or whatever, that have not totally been taken out or, or corrected. And so inerrancy does not apply to any Bible translation. It applies to the original autographs, which are no longer in existence. Now, God could have preserved those inerrant autographs. He could have made the, the, the material they wrote on to, to have lasted. He could have done that. He's well able to do that, but he chose not to. And what he chose to do was to preserve his message in a highly accurate form through the ravages of time and the fallibility of men who copied it. Someone may quibble and say, well, what's the big deal about inerrancy if, in fact, uh, the present manuscripts and the resulting text contain some discrepancies? So what's the big deal? And the deal is that in spite of the fact that God used fallible men, humans, to preserve and translate his, his, uh, his word, that the message in true is true and reliable because it rests on a solid foundation rather than on the sands of tales and falsehoods. Now whatever whatever uh, uncertainties or inaccuracies exist in the present manuscripts, they cast no doubt on any documents. 
far as I know, there's no doctrine uh, in any doubt because of whether Solomon had this many horses or that many horses. Uh, something there's there's no doctrine under under threat. Third implication of the doctrine of of uh, inspiration is that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy to its very words. And this is what is meant by verbal inspiration. We believe in verbal inspiration. The very words may be relied on. Now, verbal inspiration is not a biblical word, just as Trinity or incarnation is not a biblical word. It is the word that we use to express a particular uh, idea or truth. And so there are times in Scripture where an argument rests on a single word. Um, God's, um, instead of God, uh, perhaps, it rests on the tense of a verb. It rests on whether it's a singular or plural. There in uh, uh, Galatians, Galatians uh, 3, where it talks about not seeds, but seed. And so... Uh, the, the very words count. Now, verbal inspiration needs to be clarified by what it is not. Sometimes people caricature ver verbal inspiration and they ridicule it by, by making it be as though the Apostle Paul was just running a typewriter and God was making his fingers move, so to speak. That, and that is referred to as mechanical dictation. Now, there were times where... Uh, writers of scripture did actually write what God uh, gave them to write. For instance, some of the, some of the prophets. It is, you know, God spoke, and this is what God said, and they wrote it down. And that's one of the quibbles I have sometimes in the book of, of the Revelation, uh, because uh, some, some uh, commentators will say, now what John was trying to do, well no, John was not trying to do. John was writing down a vision that God had given him. And and so, uh, but generally, God impressed upon men's minds the truth that he wanted them to communicate in their own words down to the very words. Uh, that God superintended down to the very words that they wrote what he wanted them to write. Another implication of inspiration is <coughs> that the entire Bible in all of its parts is equally and wholly true and authoritative. And that truth is expressed by uh, the word in the statement of faith where it talks about plenary inspiration. We believe in plenary. And plenary means full. Sometimes there'll be a big meeting and they'll have breakout groups and they'll say, now this is, you know, this is plenary session. That's when the full body is together. And so uh, the Bible in all its parts is equally and wholly true and authoritative. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Old Testament authoritatively. Now, some people pit one part of scripture against another. For example, the, the introduction or the illustration I gave uh, at the beginning in which the writer bases his arguments concerning uh, same-sex practice uh, and other things exclusively on what Jesus said. I, not so long ago, heard a man, uh, a presentation of a godly and a 
gracious, conservative Anabaptist man, and he told us how he liked to teach what Jesus taught. Well, that's fine. However, is it any more virtuous to teach what Jesus taught than to teach what Peter taught or what Paul taught? Uh, it's all on an equal par. And it almost seems to be uh, an idea of flow. of the superiority of the Gospels, or at least the Epistles are to be interpreted in light of the Gospels. And to a degree that's true because we're to interpret Scripture with Scripture. But to a very real sense, the Epistles are the divine apostolic interpretation and application of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. Jesus told His disciples, He said, I have many things to teach you. But He wouldn't be able to, but that the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth. And the epistles are the result. Apostles didn't add to Jesus' teaching under the guidance of the proposed, and I'm, I'm quoting here from F.F. F. Bruce, the apostles did not add to <coughs> Jesus' teaching under the guidance and the promised Holy Spirit they interpreted and applied. And so we shouldn't elevate the Gospels above the epistles. They all fit together seamlessly. What Jesus said in the Apostles, in the Gospels, Jesus is also saying uh, through the Epistles. Fifth, fifth implication, the Bible speaks authoritatively through the medium of human language, culture, and experience. Well, the Bible is inerrant even when touching on issues of history and science. We must remember that God willed to be written by men and for men in human language and reflecting human experience. And consequently, the Bible reflects real-life language and real-life uh, culture. That means that we should be comfortable with such things as figures of speech and round figures and uh, approximate uh, figures. We should not press the precision of scientific accuracy that that's expected of a rocket scientist or, or an automotive machi machinist. We don't speak that way. Uh, we speak in terms of what is appropriate for the occasion. Figures might be approximate. We might say a mile or a kilometer, but it may be slightly longer or slightly, slightly shorter. We speak as we observe things, not as they really are. We say the sun rises. We don't say, did you all see the rotation of the earth this morning? Uh, but we don't speak that way. We speak as we observe things. And uh, so we may even generalize and say everybody was sleeping, and really two or three were awake. And, and so we, that's the way the Bible was written. That does not make the Bible inaccurate. That just shows the, the, the uh, language that, that they were human too. They spoke, they spoke as we speak. Sometimes we may go to great lengths to try to justify, you know, about the labor and, and how you, you know, how long big around it was, and and you know the thickness of the wall and that, and that type of thing. And I'm not sure we need to go through that motion. Bible speaks in generalities, just as we do. And that's what makes the Bible so interesting and relevant and applicable to to all ages. Imagine, imagine if the Bible was written as a philosophy book or as a theology book. But no, it's, it's interesting because it is written in human language and culture. 
In conclusion, there's a defining story in the life and ministry of the late Billy Graham. And some of you younger ones may only have vague knowledge of the man, and some of you other ones may think that he's unworthy of an example of conservative ministries. But I believe we should give honor and respect where it's due, and despite Billy's, uh, Mr. Graham's shortcomings, he was a man of great commitment and great integrity in many ways. I do believe, and God used him for the salvation of many. And as a young man, young married man, um, he, Billy, had served in itinerant evangelism with an organization known as Youth for Christ. He was also conducting some evangelism, crusade evangelism of his own, and he was also president of the college. That's a very young man. Uh, Northwestern was it called? Many, in Minneapolis, the uh, Billy Graham Association was in Minneapolis, and the reason it was in Minneapolis is because that's where the college was. I think that's where he was president, and so it's kind of even though he's he was from Charlotte, North Carolina, that's where his association for much of the time the headquarters was. But anyway, as a young man, he was doing all those things. But he was facing a personal crisis, a crisis which came to head just shortly before the crusade in Los Angeles said that um, catapulted him into national consciousness and onto the world stage in uh, 1949. And this is what happened, that a friend of his, who was also a fellow evangelist with with a camp with the youth for Christ, uh, you know these were dynamic uh, speakers. So they were people who could, who were really uh, really active and spellbinding. And his friend was Charles Templeton, Templeton, Chuck Templeton, and he was even a, a more effective, uh, more charismatic figure than what Billy was. And Chuck was a, a bit of an intellectual mind and. You know, he, he got to having questions about this thing. You know, are we just taking people along in the force of our personality? More of that, of that type of thing. And so he, anyway, he, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and was going to school. Well, by that time, Princeton Theological Seminary was uh, liberal. And he was, uh, you know, things like, uh, no doubt, higher criticism was part of, of their agenda or their teaching at that time. And so he was starting to have real questions about the authority of Scripture and about the nature of Scripture and this type of thing. And he started feeding this thing to Billy and, and telling Billy that, you know, uh, he started to undermine Billy's faith. And Billy at that time, he started reading He started reading uh, some authors, uh, Niebuhr, there was a Richard Niebuhr and a Reinhold Niebuhr, and these were neo-Orthodox people. Billy said something like this, uh, I read, I was reading, you know, one of the Niebuhrs, and I got a faint glimpse of what they were trying to say. <laughs> I just got a glimpse of what they were trying to say. Well, you know, these are heavy things, and, and Billy's uh, convictions having to do with the authority and inspiration of Scripture coming under attack. Now here he was, uh, a man who was um, preaching preaching the gospel. And how could he preach the gospel with assurance and with power if he didn't believe in the authority of Scripture? And how could he be president of a college that was founded uh, 
on unquestioned faith in the authority of the Bible if he couldn't trust the Bible. And he was talking to Chuck, and he said, but Chuck, when I, when I say the Bible says, or God says, and by the way, the Bible says was a signature phrase for Billy Graham. And it gets results. Now, you know, we're not just want to get results, but it did get results for Billy Graham. And uh, he just couldn't put this out of mind. And he was out in California in the mountains at a youth convention or something, and he went out one night, and he sat on a rock, and he laid his Bible out on a stump, and he said, I can't remember exactly what my prayer was like, but it was like this, Father, I'm going to accept this as our word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word, and as the saying goes, the rest is history. Chuck Templeton came to the point that he says, um, I am not no longer a Christian. And he, he lost element of faith. Ultimately, our faith is not in the Bible, but in the God of the Bible. We don't have all the answers about God, but we have sufficient evidence to put our faith in Him. And we can have faith that He communicated to us. And we do not have all the answers about the Bible. But we have sufficient evidence to put our faith in the Bible. That is, that God was able to breathe out His Word, which is authoritative, absolutely worthy of obedience, believe in obedience, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. 